Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Our scripture reading this morning will again be Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. If you're using uh, one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses beginning on page 875. This will be our third and hopefully final sermon uh, on these verses. Two weeks ago, our focus was on verses 14 and 15. Then last Sunday, our focus was on verses 16 and 17. And this morning, our focus will be on verse 18. So let's read together the text. Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 14. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon our study here this morning. Father God, this is your word. And so we ask that the same spirit that inspired Luke to write it would now be with us as we hear it read and preached. That your spirit would grant to us ears to hear and hearts to receive, minds to understand and wills to obey. That we might bring forth the fruit of this word in our lives to the praise of your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In our two previous studies of these verses, we have seen two important truths concerning the law and the kingdom of God. First, in verses 14 and 15, we saw that there is an obedience that God hates. An obedience that is not pleasing to Him. It's not even neutral, but actually an obedience that is an abomination in His sight. And this is significant because the Pharisees were known for their obedience. That was their calling card. They were the ones who were devoted to keeping the law. They were the ones who who kept the, the Sabbath scrupulously. They were the ones who tithed even on their herb garden. They were law keepers. And yet, Jesus says that their obedience, such as it was, was an abomination in the sight of God because they were the ones who justified themselves. They, they obeyed in order to prove their righteousness, in order to garner the praise, not of God, but of, of men. They, they obeyed in order to prove how good they were. They obeyed in order to exalt themselves. And God says, or Jesus says, that such an abomination, or such an obedience, is an abomination in the sight of God. It is, it is something that God hates. And so therefore, as we, as we hear Jesus say these things, it is, it is a challenge to us, it is an exhortation to us to examine ourselves in the light of these words. We must be willing to look at our hearts and to see what is our motivation, because motivation matters. God regards the heart. Why do we obey? Why do we do the things that we do? 
Do we obey as unto the Lord, or do we obey in order to garner the praise of men? And one of the best ways to examine ourselves is to determine what is it that we do when, when there are no men looking? What do we do when, when we are not being Washed when what we do will not bolster our reputation. How concerned are we with obedience in those private, secret moments? This is the first truth that we learn. The second truth we learned in these verses came in verses 16 and 17. And here in these verses we learn that while there is an obedience that God hates, this does not mean that God hates obedience. There is also an obedience that God delights in. There is also an obedience that God requires of His Children, you'll notice in verse 16 that Jesus draws a a clear distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament eras. He says the law and the prophets were until John, but since John, since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. So there was an Old Testament era that was until John, but now with the advent of Christ, with, with Jesus' own coming, with Jesus' own ministry, we have entered a new era, a New Testament Era. And it is different. In the Old Testament, the law reigned. In the Old Testament, the people were, were under the law as law. The law said to them, do this and live. Don't do this and die. Now as we saw, when, when the scriptures say this, it does not mean that salvation in the Old Testament was by works. That's not at all what is going on. But rather what it means is that in the Old Testament, condemnation was by works. The law was there uh, ruling over them in order to expose them as sinners, in order to show that, that they were failures to keep the law. They, they could not earn life by the law. They were uh, totally dependent upon God's mercy, which was foreshadowed in the sacrifices that God also gave to the people alongside that Old Testament Law, But now in the age of gospel, the, what those uh, sacrifices foreshadowed, what those sacrifices pointed to, has now come to fruition. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, has come. Or as Paul says it in Romans chapter 3, now a righteousness that is apart from the law, not through law keeping, but a righteousness that is apart from the law, has been Revealed. This is the gospel of justification by faith alone, apart from work, so that no man can boast. We are justified. We are right in the sight of God. We are at peace with Him, not because of what we have done, but because of what has been done for us by another. That is the very heart of the gospel, as Jim said. That's the main thing that we want to keep, the, the main thing, that we are justified Apart from our own works, we are justified by faith in the works of another. But Jesus goes on quickly to say, this does not mean that the law has therefore been set aside. This does not mean that God is not interested in obedience. It does not mean that the law has become void. Not at all. In fact, that would be impossible. The law cannot change. The law cannot change because God does not change. The law is simply a reflection of of His character woven into the very fabric of the universe. And if God does not change, that law cannot change. His his blueprint for society cannot change. His, His path for humanity cannot deviate. It cannot be altered. It cannot become void. But rather, it now serves us, not as a law ruling over us, but as a lamp to our feet a light to our path, that we might walk in the way of God's goodness and of God's blessing. The law is is the blueprint for God's life and God's kingdom. 
This is how he would live. This is the good life he has called us to. We see this uh, probably more clearly than anywhere else in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul is outlining for us this salvation by grace through faith, uh, apart from work, so that no one can boast, he tells us. But then immediately in verse 10, he goes on to say, and we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works. We've been saved apart from works. But we have been saved for good works, the very works that He has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is the point that Jesus is making. Jesus said, you were saved apart from the law so that you might now fulfill the law. Or as He says it in Romans 8, so that now the righteous requirement of the laws might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so there's an obedience that God hates, but there's also an obedience that God delights in. And the illustration that Jesus gives us in verse 18 is given to us as as a sort of test. As a a sort of example saying, here, test yourself against this law. How do you respond here? Because at this point, you can see whether or not you are submitting to the law that God has given to His people. So what is this test? What is the illustration that that Jesus gives us in verse 18? Well, look at it yourselves. We see it there. He says, If everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now this verse catches a lot of people by surprise. It seems like a a non-sequitur to to many. It just doesn't seem to follow with what we've been talking about up to this point. Jesus has been talking about money, then he's been talking about the law, and all of a sudden now he is talking about marriage and divorce, and it's just sort of a a one-off verse. And and the ESV doesn't really help us because it actually makes it a one-off verse by giving it its own heading here. But, But really this is part of the discussion. This is a flow. This is part of the flow of what Jesus has been talking about. This is an illustration of the point that he has just been making in verses 16 and 17. Jesus has just been saying that the law, the law that God gave us is the standard for morality even now in the gospel age. That the law is still our guide. That it is it is still the lamp unto our feet. It cannot be set aside. And one example is God's law concerning marriage. God's law for marriage and God's definition of adultery. These still stand. These still rule even now in God's kingdom. So let's see what this illustration teaches us. And the first point that I want to draw out of verse 18 is this. God's law defines marriage. God's law defines marriage. It's not explicitly stated, but it is clearly implied in what Jesus says. By by telling us, or by telling his disciples what adultery is, Jesus is assuming the right to tell them first what marriage is. And the, the assumption here is that marriage is not a human institution. Marriage is not something that man made up, but rather marriage is a divine institution. When I do marriages, when I do wedding ceremonies... I do not allow people to write their own vows because I tell them, listen, you didn't make up marriage. You don't get to decide what promises you're going to make entering into this relationship. This is given to you by God. And so we do not decide what vows we will take when we get married. We enter into marriage as God has defined it. We could say the same thing about sort of present day endeavors to... um, 
redefine marriage. I'm sure you've heard that, that term. People talk about redefining marriage as if the state had such a right. The, rate, the state can no more redefine marriage than they can redefine water. They, they can begin to tell us that you know, maybe two oxygen atoms make water, but it is not so. God is the one who defined marriage. God is the one who tells us this is what marriage is. And so what does God tell us? What is God's definition of marriage? Well, to answer that question, to to sort of see the, the idea of marriage that lies behind this text, we have to go all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, where we are told that in the beginning, God created man. And how did he create them? He created them male and Female. In the beginning, God created man, male and female. It was God's idea to have this diversity. It was God's idea to have male and female made in His image. But that in and of itself is, is not marriage. We don't get marriage until we get to chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, we are told that a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast, or to use the language we were using in Sunday school this morning, to cleave to his wife. That's the old King James. That a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God creates man as male and female. He says that they will join together. They will bond in marriage, and they will become one flesh. This is actually the text that Jesus himself quotes in in Matthew 19 when he is discussing marriage with the Pharisees. And and he at that point adds, "What what God has joined together, let not man separate. Reminding us that this one flesh union between a man and his wife, this one flesh union that is marriage, is a death till us part relationship. It is a forever relationship. This is God's design, that one man, that one woman should come together, should become one flesh, and shall be joined till death do us part. This is God's design for marriage. This is what marriage is. But not only does God's Word define marriage, but also by defining marriage, it also defines for us what adultery is. This is the second point that we see here in this text. Just as God gets to tell us what marriage is, God also gets to tell us what adultery is. And so again, we ask, what is God's definition of adultery? So throughout Scripture, there is a a definition of adultery that is assumed, and we can state it this way, that that adultery is violating the marriage bond or the, the marriage covenant by uniting sexually with someone other than your spouse, by someone other than your one flesh Partner, this is the definition that is assumed throughout Scripture. It's the definition that Paul states explicitly in Romans chapter 7. He says, if a, if a woman, while she is still married, lives with another man, then she is committing a adultery. That is the, the very nature of the case. But the thing that we need to notice here in this verse is what Jesus specifically, how Jesus applies that to a particular situation. Notice what Jesus says. He says, if a man divorces his wife without warrant and marries another, he commits adultery. So even if a man's divorce is legal in the eyes of the state, and even if his remarriage is legal in the eyes of the state, if the divorce was without warrant in the sight of God, then the remarriage is adultery in the sight of God. Now, you probably noticed I kind of slipped a phrase in there. I said if he divorces without 
warrant. What does that mean? Because it's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't mention any warrants for divorce in in verse 18. But but when we're dealing with a verse like this, we have to consider the the whole counsel of God. We have to consider everything the scriptures say. This this one verse is not everything that that scripture teaches us about marriage and about uh, divorce. It's not even everything that, that Jesus says. I already mentioned Matthew chapter 19 and if you will, turn there with me. Uh, keep, a, keep a finger in Matthew 16, but uh, we're going to be coming back. But flip over to Matthew 19 just quickly. Because here in Matthew 19, Jesus is having a discussion with the Pharisees. And it's, it's a discussion that centers on this very question. You'll notice that the Pharisees come to him in verse 3. And they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any Cause. This is a test. They're, they're putting Jesus to the test. And as we saw already in, in verse 4, uh, Jesus begins to give them the definition of marriage. He says, Have you not read that he who created from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall, not leave, his father, uh, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. What God has joined together, let not man Separate. And so there is, that's what we were just talking about. This is God's definition of marriage. He says, Do you, don't you know what the Bible says about marriage? But of course, they, they're ready. They, they knew the response that was coming. And so in verse 7, they reply and they say, They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? That seems like a rather strange way to phrase the question. I don't remember Moses commanding husbands to divorce their, their wives, but, but the idea is that when a divorce happened, a certificate had to be given. That was actually uh, a command. But notice Jesus' reply in verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. So, so because of your sin problem, <laughs> God allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, verse 9, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So here Jesus states a grounds for divorce, a, a warrant for divorce. And he says, apart from this warrant... Divorce is, leads to adultery. He says, but with this warrant, sexual immorality, except for uh, when there has been sexual immorality, uh, then there is a, a warrant for divorce, and then the woman is not committing adultery. You see the same thing or something similar in, in 1 Corinthians 7, because there Paul is dealing with a, a slightly different issue. But again, he, he states a grounds or a, or a warrant for divorce. He says, listen, if you, uh, if you have a, a couple who are unbelievers and one of them becomes a believer, if the unbelieving spouse is willing to remain in the marriage, then they ought to remain married. But if the unbelieving spouse is no longer willing to remain married and, and leaves and says, I'm out of here, I can't handle this, then the believing spouse, the one who has been deserted, the one who has been left, is no longer bound. Uh, he, he is free to, to divorce and to remarry. And so we have these two grounds for divorce that the church has traditionally recognized. Sexual immorality and desertion. And what I want you to notice about both of those grounds, the reason that God gives us both of those grounds for divorce is because in both cases, the marriage has already been broken. The marriage bond, the marriage union has already been violated. When there is sexual immorality, the marriage bond has been violated. When, when one spouse deserts the relationship, the marriage bond is already severed. It is already broken. 
And so God, in those cases, allows, because of our hardness of heart, because of our, our sinfulness, because we live in a fallen world, in those cases, God allows the innocent party to divorce their spouse and to be free to remarry. But notice, a person is not free to divorce and remarry simply because they have fallen out of love. Or simply because they have a hard time getting along. Or simply because they have irreconcilable differences. Or have developed new life goals and and different interests. In such circumstances, a person has a moral obligation before God to remain married and to do everything in their power to live at peace with their spouse. To do everything in their power to nurture the health of their relationship. For Jesus himself says, to divorce and remarry for any reason other than these is to commit adultery. This is the point he's making in verse 18. He says, God defines marriage. And therefore, because God defines marriage, God also defines adultery. And it is adultery if you divorce without warrant and marry another. Even if the state says your divorce was legal. In the eyes of God, it is still adultery. Now that's a hard saying. That's a hard saying. Marriage is, is the most intimate relationship we enter into as humans. And when it, when it is stressed, when it is distressed, when it is troubled, it brings trouble to our whole lives. It is a hard saying to say you are not free to divorce when your marriage goes south. In fact, this is exactly what the disciples say. If you're still open to, to Matthew chapter 19, look at what the disciples say in verse 10. He says, the disciples said to him, if it is such, if such is the case between a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. And they're like, Jesus, do you know what you're saying? This sounds ridiculous. <laughs> this is too hard. This is too much. You can't possibly be truly asking this of us. And if we look around our our culture, we recognize that there are many people in our culture today who who simply are willing to set aside Jesus' words here or just not regard them at all. Because it is so hard. It is so challenging. But it is that challenge that brings us to the heart of the matter. It is that challenge that brings us to the very point that Jesus is trying to drive home here in verse 18. Why do you think Jesus chose marriage to illustrate his point? He chose marriage because it is so challenging, because it is so close to our heart. The bottom line is simply this. God defines marriage. God defines adultery. And we are called on to receive and submit to his word as our authority. The question is, will we? Will we receive God's law? Will we receive God's word? Will we submit to it because it is God's word? Or will we do what is right in our own eyes? Will we do what seems good to us? Or will we only obey God when His commandments make sense? When His commandments fit with what we think is right? As I said, there are many who who long to redefine marriage today. And and the the church rightly stands in opposition to them. And the church rightly says, you you are not free to redefine marriage. This is God's institution. But, But if we are honest, I think if we look carefully in the mirror, we will see that marriage was redefined long ago. At least in the eyes of the state. 
It is not for the first time that they are trying to redefine marriage today. Think about the the advent of what was called no-fault divorce more than a generation ago. Where people could simply say, well, you know, we're no longer in love. You know, we we no longer have the same life goals. We're we're no longer compatible. Therefore, we're going to divorce. We're we're going to end this marriage and and start another one. We're going to look for for someone else who can uh, be our life partner and maybe make us happy. You recognize, of course, that that's not marriage as God defines it. At that moment, marriage is is being redefined. At that moment, marriage is being reduced to a humanly defined, mutually beneficial contract between consenting adults. We agree to to live under the same roof for a, a while, as long as it's benefiting both of us. And at that moment, you have redefined marriage. And it should be no surprise to us that that that. The culture continues to redefine it in that same way, but just with slightly different subjects. The question is, are we willing, not just to, to look at those who want to redefine marriages that we, in ways that we would never like, but are we willing to look at those who redefine marriage in ways that actually suit our interests and say, that's not okay. <laughs> that's not okay. We, we can't do that. We, we're not free we don't, we don't pick and choose. God's law is not a buffet, but rather we submit to it because He is God, because He is good, because He is wise, and His words are the words of, of life. Do you remember the disciples' response to Jesus' teaching in, in John chapter 6? In John chapter 6, Jesus' teaching takes a turn for the weird, and, and people are starting to go, you know, Jesus, what are you talking about? What is this about eating your flesh? What is this about drinking your blood? We don't really, you know, we were, we were really uh, into it a, a few moments ago, but now it's, it's, it's kind of gotten weird and the crowds begin to disperse. And Jesus looks at his closest disciples and he says to them, do you want to leave too? And I love their response because they don't say, well, no, Jesus, you know, we're really into this. You know, we, we really get this. We, we share your vision. That's not what they say. <laughs> They acknowledge this is weird. We we don't know what's going on. But they're like, where else could we go? You have the words of eternal life. We don't get exactly what you're saying. And the disciples proved that over and over and over again. They didn't always get what Jesus was saying. But they understood this. Jesus had the words of eternal life. And therefore they said, we are sticking with you. Even here, they don't like what he's saying about marriage, but they don't leave. (laughs) They're just saying, Jesus, this is hard. They said the same thing about Jesus teaching about money in another context. They, they said to Jesus, Jesus, you know, who can, who can survive under such, under such teaching? And of course, Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. By the very power of God, we can be brought up, we can be conformed to be Law keepers. In our flesh, we rebel. In our flesh, we suppress the truth. But God, by His grace, can give us eyes to see, ears to hear. He can even make it sweet in our mouth that we would receive His Word. And so here is the bottom line question that Jesus is presenting us with in this text. It simply boils down to this. Will you receive the law of God simply because it is the law of God? Or will you stand over His law as the arbiter of truth? Will you stand over His law judging it according to your own wisdom? 
Will you pick and choose that which is fitting for your own personal preferences? Because how we respond to the law of God says a lot about our relationship to Him. Think about it. You can obey the law at many, many points because you think it's good and wise. I mean, after all, God's law is actually the best way to live. <laughs> and, and, and while we are totally depraved, meaning that no part of us is unaffected by sin, we are not totally depraved in the sense that we are as bad as we could possibly be. By God's common grace, we, we still have some vestige of wisdom. By common grace, we're still able to see that, that some things work and others don't. And so a non-Christian can say, honesty is the best policy. Life just goes better if generally you stick to the truth. A non-Christian can say, you know, we really ought not to take other people's stuff because society works better and my stuff is better protected if there's laws against stealing. A non-Christian can can say the same thing about murder. A non-Christian can say, you know what? It's better if we don't murder each other because then I'm less likely to get murdered. Of course, when you're basing it only on pragmatic reasons. The idea of killing the defenseless becomes much more acceptable in a society, and we see that, do we not? Those who are most at risk are, are most likely to be murdered in our culture. Those who are old or those who are even yet unborn. Why? Because we are obeying ourselves and not God. And so at point after point after point, we can look at God's law and we can say, well, that seems to make sense to us, therefore we will do it. Even even God's law against coveting makes sense. And you can walk into Books a Million, you can find any number of books that will tell you you ought to focus on on what you have rather than what you don't have. You ought to count your blessings rather than, than focusing on what you don't have. Because when you focus on what you don't have, it just makes you sad. It just makes life more difficult. Be content. And yet... In all these things, in all these ways, what are we doing? We are leaning on our own understanding. We are doing what seems right to us. We're not actually obeying God, but we're following the path of our own wisdom. We are doing what is right in our own eyes. And as I said, the the test that proves this is the point of disagreement. It's the point where, where what seems good to us is in conflict with what God has said is right. The laws about murder are one example. The laws about marriage are yet another. It's the one that Jesus chooses in this text. Because this is a point of conflict. This is a point of of contention. This is our most intimate relationship. This is, this is the relationship that, that most fills our lives. Are we really willing to turn this relationship over to God's law? Are we really willing to submit to something that's so vitally important to God's law, even when it contradicts our desires? That's the, the question. That's the question that Jesus is is forcing us to ask. And you know what the modern mind says. The modern mind, the the world out there, everyone from Disney to to Starbucks to, to Madison Avenue, everyone will tell you, you need to do 
what seems good to you. You need to be true to yourself. You need to follow your heart. You need to do what is right in your own eyes. They may not use the words, but they say it as clearly as they can. You must lean on your own understanding. Because if you allow someone else to dictate to you, life's almost not worth living. You have to be free. But Scripture says such freedom leads to death. Scripture says, God says, it is the fool who says in his heart there is no God. What a foolish thing to disregard the fact that God is there. It is the fool who refuses to acknowledge Him and receive His Word. It is the fool who leans on his own understanding rather than receiving the good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. The way of life, the way of abundant life, the way of true flourishing, is as counterintuitive to sinful man as just about anything in Scripture because Jesus says the way to life is to die. The way to life is to die to yourself. The way to life is to give up the right to define for yourself what is good and to acknowledge and obey Him. The way to life is to bow before Him and to receive His Word without qualification or reservation. The promise is bold. Jesus says the one who loses his life to follow me will find it. He will have true life and he will have it abundantly. You have been saved from the law, not so that you can go and do your own thing, not so that you can kill yourself in any myriad of foolish ways, but rather you have been saved from the curse of the law that you might now live under the law as a blessing. You've been saved from the curse of the law that the righteous requirement of the law might now be fulfilled in you through the power of the Spirit. That's the blessing. That's the good news. As I said in this passage, Jesus, He shows us two things. He shows us the obedience that that God hates, and He shows us the obedience that God requires. But really, you could, you could flip that, and you could say, God, He shows us two types of obedience that God hates. God hates the man-pleasing obedience of the Pharisees, but He also hates the self-pleasing obedience of the Pharisees. He hates it when they obey God's law just to earn the praise of men, but He also hates it when they obey only when it suits their own selves, only when it suits their own desires. Jesus says, I've come to call you out of both forms of disobedience into true obedience, into a true submission to my law. Not not because I would rule over you with an iron fist, but because I love you. Because I know who you are. I know what you were created to be. And I desire the best for you. And therefore I call on you to die to yourself. To renounce your right to, the, to go your own way. To submit to me as your Lord and King. To follow me without question or reservation. Because if you will lose your life to follow me, then you will know true life. And you will know it abundantly. And it's because He calls us to such a life that we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Believe it with me. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. 
We rejoice in Your call. Father, we admit that because we are foolish sinners, we sometimes, far too often in fact, hear Your call as something onerous, as as something burdensome. But Father God, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to, to receive and submit to Your law as the blessing that it is, Father. That we might know truly what it is to flourish as Your obedient children. And that we might know in full the blessing You have for those who lose their lives to follow Your Son. Father, this is what we ask for. And we ask for it boldly in His name and for His name's sake. Amen.